Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. In today's episode, The Examined Life, Jeff and I take a look at the ancient wisdom of Socrates as conveyed by Plato in The Apology. We discuss how we came to Socrates through the discovery of and subsequent engagement with a great book's curriculum, as well as about the value of living an examined life and the true wisdom of knowing what you don't know. We conclude with a discussion of what these ideas mean in the context of today's cultural moment, as well as how they inform our thinking about the beautiful illusions concept. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now for today's episode, The Examined Life. listening to this podcast um, called The Art of Manliness, and I heard this episode about the great books curriculum, and which is this idea that you read through all the great books of Western civilization, basically starting with uh, the Greeks and going all the way up through basically, you know, the 20th century, um, looking at great works of philosophy and science and um, things like uh, politics and government and, and all of these influential books that basically the modern world is, is built on. And this immediately appealed to me as like, yes, I'm going to do this. It's a, it's a 10-year reading curriculum, and if you go through the whole thing, you're going to understand why everything is the way it is, right? And, you know, this, this appealed to me because I love the idea of building my understanding of our current context. And so I think I mentioned to you, oh, here's a thing we should do. And so I think I sent you the either the podcast or the website, and I think you were pretty into it too, right? Oh, I was immediately into it because I've been doing like an amorphous version of the great books on my own for like 20 years, just kind of grabbing and picking and not really having a structure to it. But... uh uh, through the years of doing this, I've come to realize that I actually work well or better under a structure. So when I saw that somebody somebody else had laid out what these great books are, because when you walk into the bookstore and you see all these books and you go into the classic fiction section or you go into this section, it's rather intimidating to decide what you should pick to read. It's uh, As an English teacher, it's kind of funny. It's like we have all these philosophies of what we're going to read. It becomes very intimidating when you open up the idea of what you could pick for the kids to read because there's it's endless. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, it is, it's not endless, but there's so much to choose from in that. So the, the idea that somebody with just a little bit of expertise has like laid out this list of uh, where I could check off these different thinkers and fill in the blanks and the um, contextual... Uh, timeline that I'm creating in my head makes complete and total sense to me. The funny thing is that the list format appeals to me immediately too. I'm like, yes, I'm going to do this. I can commit to it. And the number of times that I've done something like this in my life, it's been a lot of times where I've found a thing where I'm like, oh, if I do this from beginning to end, when I get to the end of it, I will have mastered this body of knowledge or set of skills or whatever. And, and almost invariably what always happens is I start and then at some point I lose interest in doing that and I can't, I can't stick it out and I, and I get interested in something else. And the reason I, I mentioned that is because we're actually recording this now, this episode for the second time. Uh, we originally recorded it probably, I don't even know, last year at some point in 2019, I think maybe it was one of the very first things we ever tried to record. And we read 
the first thing in the great books series that we had picked, which was Plato's Apology and Credo. So we we read those and we recorded this podcast about it. And then I proceeded to lose the recording and then a whole lot of time went by and we recorded some other things. And now we're giving it a second shot. Um, And in the meantime, I have basically fallen off the great books curriculum and Jeff is still going with it. I'm still reading a lot of things and I'm kind of keeping up with the ideas as Jeff kind of works his way through it. But, um, you know, that's kind of where we're at. And, And it's funny because I had then listened to another episode of the Art of Manliness podcast later on where there was somebody else who was talking about how to increase like your pleasure in your reading. And basically he was advocating not following a list, just kind of following your, I think he called it whim. You know, if this strikes your interest, then go ahead and start reading that, you know, and it, don't slog your way through these big long lists of books because somebody else says you're supposed to read them. And, and I think what I realize is for me personally, I love the idea of working my way through that list. But I think it might almost be like a, a, a thing where it's an ego thing where I would like to be able to say I read the list more almost than I actually want to put in the time to work my way through it. And so I find myself just wanting to uh, read whatever I happen to be interested in in the moment. So here we are going back now because without a doubt, I mean, I, I still think that I'm glad I at least started because reading Plato's Apology, which basically lays out the trial of Socrates um, you know, it, it was really important for, for us at the time. And still, I think it's a pretty foundational document for what we're trying to do here. Well, I think, uh, I think the funniest part about you uh, acknowledging that you like to set out these accomplishments you want to achieve, goals you want to achieve through time, and then you end up falling off is that as I think about that, I've been, been involved in several of those <laughs> where you've fallen off <laughs> because there there was a point where we were both going to read great novels yes. and then we were going to sit down and talk about them and yeah. we started doing it and, and Rabelais uh, kind of ended it for yeah. both of us. I don't we, think that was just me that time though. That was, I think, both of us kind of like petered out on that one. No, it's, it's Rabelais. He's, he's also been a struggle for me in the great books list. Um and then we were doing the mu- we did a lot in the music club. We had a music club. We would yeah. sit together and we would listen to music. And but that faded. Uh, that wasn't you either. That faded through children think, and yeah. busyness and me moving. To yeah, life pr- changes. Yeah, right. the apology is actually the, th- the thing that I think back to that makes me continue reading through these great books. The first ten pages of the apology is one of my foundational books. One of the books I keep coming back to to the point where professing wisdom I don't have is a quotation that comes up in my head continuously. Mm-hmm. And the apology, I didn't even know this, but the apology has been a part of my life for the last five plus years because at some point, I, I think I, I was reading a book about um, a book about the history of philosophy. I think this is where I first saw the quotation. And it was, it was told through how famous philosophers died. Uh, that was the premise of the book. And in it, I think I found the quotation that an unexamined life is not worth living, which is attributed to Socrates. Just to make it a point here, uh, some of you may know already, but everything Socrates said was not actually, he never wrote anything down. Uh, Most of what we have from Socrates was written down by Plato, who was taught by Socrates. So an unexamined life is not worth living became, it became part of my teaching pedagogy, part of my teaching philosophy, because to me, that's the English classroom. The English classroom is where you start to examine your life and the life around you and humanity in general and question and ask, why do we do things like this? Uh, English is thinking uh, about all of that and examining all of that. And then when I read the apology, I read the first nine pages and I was completely enthralled. And I was, I felt like I was reading a book that could have been written yesterday like it could be on Barnes and Noble right now it lost me after page 10 and it <laughs> kind of went away from that but and then I read the quotation and I was like oh wow this all comes together for me yeah it's cool because whatever the number is 2400 years ago or whenever this event took place um and it, it had so much resonance and it is amazing to think that you would be talking about a person that lived that long ago still now today, all this time later, and that the idea of really this unexamined life not worth living, you know, the opposite of that meaning, you know, the examined life is worth living. And so, like, what does that actually mean, right? And and like you're saying, it's it's not just literally looking at my life. It's looking at this concept of what is this life that we live and pursuing wisdom 
through the process of reflection is the way that we make life better for ourselves and for others, right? And if we're not going to do that, if we're not going to really, it just says to me, like, if we're not going to take time to just stop and think about stuff, then what's the point of doing any of this? Like, you know, we can get into arguments about better and worse and what we should and shouldn't do and what outcomes we're trying to achieve. But none of it can happen without taking some time to stop and think. And then we can go in a million directions and start making connections to, well, what does it actually mean to stop and think? You know, what part of your brain are you, you know, and that's stuff we like to talk about too, right? And so that like just little quotation, the unexamined life is not worth living, really leads you into the broader world of thought. Right. And that's very appealing, I think, to the two of us, because essentially what bonded us together initially was the world of ideas. Right. We, we found that we what we really had in common was we liked to talk about like current world events, you know, sports and what was going on in the high school and local life. But we also we like to talk about ideas. We like to think about things. And uh, and I really think that. As far as I understand it, the tradition of actually reflecting and thinking on life starts with the early pre-Socratic and philosophers and then Socrates and on through today, right? Yeah, it also connects like perfectly with how we both handle the great books and how we both go about this. Because um, like while we when we first read the Apology, we both did a little bit of research on Socrates. And what I found is in this quotation, some people actually think he's going too far. Some people think he's actually um, being a little bit almost like um, early Greek elitist, where it's like everybody should just drop what you're doing and become a philosopher and walk around thinking all the time. But I don't see it that way. Uh, and I think we could contextually talking about professing wisdom, which we're going to get into. I think you could argue that it's more about recognizing what you're good at and not. I, I hate this phrase but not going out of your lane uh, and and trying to tell somebody something in an area that you have no idea what you're talking about, which we'll, uh, we'll get into. So the broader view of this unexamined life fits nicely into me because I'm an English major, because I teach English. When I go into the great books, it's kind of like part of my life to read the specifics of those great books because that's building on my slowly growing, hopefully what one day will become expertise in this history of writing. And the Greeks is where our tradition comes from. So I feel like I need to see the specifics of it. That's how I examine life in my way. But for you, you like to get the broader thought of it. And then you like to be able to expand and search and go down rabbit holes. Or this is what I've seen of like when you talk to me about this, you like to, because I completely see the value of this, you like to be able to see the Sparknotes version of it, get the bigger idea, and then branch off and find how that bigger idea connects to another bigger idea. Because I want to see the specifics of it, I'm willing to let it unfold slowly, but you want to see the connections a little bit quicker. And, and I'm saying that both of these ways are just cool ways of thinking and absorbing things. Both of these ways are examining life and making it worth living in our way. Yeah, I'm definitely more of a forest than a trees kind of person, right? I like big, like I, I like the biggest pictures that we can possibly look at at once. And, and I really want to get like the big ideas. It's not that I don't, I'm not interested in details. Like there are some times where I'm, like you said, I will totally go down a rabbit hole. Like I'll spend, you know, years perfecting, like making pizza, you know, because and every tiny little nuanced detail of a thing. And there's some topics that like, I really do want to know the specifics. And then there's other things where I want to know, like these big generalizable principles. And I like the idea of being able to make connections between what might initially seem like disparate kind of things through either subject areas or time or whatever it is and connect them together and be like, oh, really, this is just this and this is this. And these ideas are really very similar. And if we could just grab hold of all this great thought and help coalesce it into something that helps us understand our current time and helps us examine the life we're living now today, then that's going to probably help us move forward in a way that is better. And again, I use better in the sense that, you know, what, however we define what better means collectively or individually, that's the process that we would kind of want to go through. And I think for, for me, you know, that's a lot of what this beautiful illusions 
project really is about. It's it's about how do we build that understanding of where we've been and how we got to where we are and how we move ourselves forward. And I think that that's a good thing to do. Do you want to just give a little bit of background on what's going on in Apology, just uh, in terms of the content of what it is? Yeah, so uh, Socrates is on trial for corrupting the young minds of Athens. So he's been going around um, asking questions, and he's developed a following. And the people in power are nervous, as people in power will be when people start to question them, because Socrates definitely seems like a little bit of a contrarian. He's definitely willing to... Uh, question your core beliefs right in front of your face, and they think that's going to maybe take away some of their power. Uh, he's questioning how things work. So they uh, they accuse him of not believing in the gods. Um, they use this as one of the driving forces of their campaign against him. And then his trial is actually a trial to be put to death. He actually doesn't care about the death part. And that, that comes up in Credo. We're not going to discuss Credo, but Credo is a shorter part where uh, Socrates is in jail and one of his disciples, Credo, comes and talks to him. And he's like, Socrates, why don't you try and save yourself? All you have to do is this. There's a bunch of us who are going to give you money. We could get you away. And, so- and Socrates fully believes in what he's doing and is willing to go to death for that thought. So in the Apology, rather than actually defend himself, he spends it just further laying out his contrarian views and like kind of I would say in the modern day he's kind of just standing in front of the court and giving them a giant middle finger and saying that they're all less wise than they want to be and that becomes like the central theme that he puts forth uh, for, especially for those first 10 pages he talks the, about the idea of how often we profess wisdom that we do not have and this is where it connects to, for my mind, that, like I mentioned before, when you think about it, and an unexamined life is not worth living. To me, when you think about the larger theme of professing wisdom you don't have, when you think about that quotation, it's the idea of examining when you say something, you should examine whether what you're saying is something you actually know or whether it's something you're just making up or just pulling out of your ass because you want to pretend you know this. Yeah, and I think that ideally maybe you would even do that before you said it, right? As as we learn more and more about neuroscience, though, sometimes you just can't stop it. (laughs) I know for me personally, and I tell this to the people that know me well, I talk through my ideas, and, and the primary way that I work things out is through talking. So a lot of times my thoughts are formulated as I speak them. It's not that the ideas don't aren't there in my mind beforehand, but for me, a lot of times it's it's I'm working it out as I'm saying it. So I'm not fully confident that what's coming out of my mouth is is my correct view right away, but it's me working through the thing. But to go back into apology, I think one of the interesting things that Socrates kind of lays out is he, he's talking about this idea of how the oracle says that Socrates is the wisest man. And so he kind of goes through this process. He wants to figure out, well, if I'm the wisest man, you know, why? And so he goes around and he's interviewing all these other people about what do they think about this and what do they think about that? And that's where he comes up with this realization that, you know, as he's talking to these different people and questioning them, he he realizes that they might know things about a specific thing, but ultimately a lot of times when he would question them a little more deeply, you know, like ask that follow-up question and then another one, people really didn't know as much about it as they thought that they did. So that's where we get to this other really, I think, famous quote, which before I actually read the quote, I want to talk about how I initially came to know this quote before I even read the Apology, and that's through this popularization of the idea that Socrates said this quote, which is, all I know is I know nothing. You see this repeated. If you look it up online, you'll see this attributed to Socrates. And it seems to be a paradox where it's like, well, if you know nothing, you know that you know nothing, so you know something, right? And this struck me as this deep thing. It's like, oh, wow, this is really is wise, right? I know that I know nothing. And and so then when I looked into it, he doesn't actually ever really say that. We don't know what he ever really said, right? Because as you already mentioned, anytime we have anything 
of Socrates saying anything, it's as a character in one of Plato's works, right? So we don't know if really those are Socrates' words or those are the words that Plato is putting in Socrates' mouth to show some other point. But regardless, what Socrates actually um, apparently said is, I am wiser than this man, for neither of us really knows anything fine and good, but this man thinks he knows something when he does not, whereas I, as I do not know anything, do not think I do either. I seem then in just this little thing to be wiser than this man at any rate, that what I do not know, I do not think I know either. So again, and I think this is a concept that we like to talk about a lot, like all I know is that I know nothing loses a little bit of the nuance of this actual quotation where he's basically saying that the true wisdom is not to profess wisdom that you don't have, right? To know the difference between what you know and what you don't know and just not pretending that you know a thing that you don't actually know is the true wisdom. Not literally Socrates saying, I don't know anything at all. Um, You know, just by the way he comes across in Apology, I doubt that Socrates would say he literally doesn't know anything. He seemed to know quite a bit. You know, he talks a lot about like concepts in other places like justice and things like that. So he's professing knowledge um, a lot of times, but he, you know, this idea that I don't know about a lot of things and I'm not going to say that I do if I don't know what they are. I think that that's kind of lost in the modern world where we all have opinions about things. And that goes back to this self-examined life. Why do I think this? Why do I believe this? You know, we need to really think about that before we start giving our uh, opinion on it. There's, there's many things out there in the world right now that I, you know, I know nothing about. And one of the things, you know, I always used to like to say to my students when they would ask me a question and then I wouldn't know the answer after I said, I don't know. And they would say, but you're a science teacher. You're supposed to know, you know, science teachers are supposed to know everything about animals and medicine. (laughs) Uh, you know, so medical questions, animal questions, I don't know, you know, and, and I would say, I know almost nothing about almost everything which I literally believe is truth, right? There's just so much knowledge to have. And why would I pretend to know a thing that I don't know about? Although for a lot of my life, I did exactly that. You know, I would expound on things that I didn't know anything about. So I think that really is a profound piece of wisdom to me, that if you can hold that, it's very useful for a lot of the thinking that you need to do to to understand. Yeah, because I think going back to what you were saying, Socrates clearly has wisdom. Like through the course of this, any in some people read it as him knowing he has wisdom because he's building a very strong argument for what he's saying through the course of his speech in front of this whole trial. But what he's doing in this is he's saying part of the wisdom that I have, uh, some people even read him as uh, a little cocky, uh, uh, sardonic at the very least, like a, a wry smile as he's saying this. But for me, I don't think you can, especially in a modern reading, you can't get rid of just the idea of uh, humility. Uh, He's a very confident man, obviously, uh, willing to go to death, obviously knows a lot, willing to question people, willing to stand in front of a person's face and say, maybe you're wrong about what you're saying. He obviously has some confidence behind what he's doing. But when you have that confidence, in the same case of you um, you being a science teacher and being willing to say you don't know, and that's kind of what he's arguing for everybody be to be able to do. Uh, and again, I think in the modern world, like you were saying, this isn't this is something that we really struggle with. Uh, there's something that w- when somebody asks us a question, we want to be able to have that answer, and uh, we rather than express anything solid, we often end up expressing this opinion that has little underbelly to it, and pretend to be an expert in a, in something that we have no idea about. It's it's like uh, when you go to the auto mechanic, and uh, so that auto mechanic obviously knows way more about my car's functioning than I do, and I'm willing to accept that to the point where, you know, I just spent $600 on brakes, and I'm perfectly fine with that. But when I go into the auto mechanic, and we start going back and forth, and he tells me that, uh, socialized medicine is probably not the best way to go. And I, even me arguing back saying, why not? That debate has no underbelly to it because both of us are going just on a very surface level thought. Uh, that's, 
It's we're just expressing opinion without having any basis to that opinion. He doesn't know about how the giant complex healthcare system works. And as much as I want to say that my view is better than his, I'll have to admit that I do think socialized medicine is possibly a better way to go. But I, you, you, act, you were saying this before in a discussion we had earlier, but I don't think I could lay out a solid argument as to why we should head towards that. I don't think I have the factual information. Even if I sat down and looked at things I've read, I don't think I could lay it out. I would have to spend way more time to be able to build that argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I find those kinds of discussions really frustrating at this point because I'm not, I'm not even necessarily frustrated with someone else for, you know, having these opinions. It's I'm frustrated because I just can't engage productively in what's supposed to then be my part of the discussion because I just find myself so unwilling right now to to make a statement based on what I know is like no factual knowledge. I started to have this experience in life as I got a little bit older and I actually did really start to gain a little more specific knowledge in some specific areas where, and I think everybody's kind of had this experience to a certain extent where, you know, we all know a decent amount about something, right? Maybe, maybe not everybody, but you know, you might know about a very specific thing. Like I, I know the British sixties rock stars and I know a ton about that, or I know 1988 New York Yankees front to back, uh, or, you know, I know about biology or, you know, about novels or whatever. And you're having conversations with people. And once you get to a certain level, you know, when people are engaging from a place of not knowing, and they don't know, like when you interact with other people, at least initially, you don't know who knows what or what they do or anything. And I was just having this experience a couple of times where I would be engaged in a conversation with somebody who obviously didn't have the fact-based knowledge about this specific thing. And a lot of times it was unimportant stuff. It was like cultural stuff, you know, because I would go down the rabbit hole of like, you know, Bob Dylan, which we discussed extensively in, you know, our previous episode. And I knew all these things. And then somebody would be talking to me about something and I would be like, well, that's a very surface level. Like if you did a little more digging, you would know that you just said three things that aren't really true, but those are the popular conceptions of it that are in the culture. But if you dig in, they're either false or there's just way more nuance. I just got to the point where I didn't want to be the person on the other side of that conversation, just from a pure, almost like a, like an embarrassment standpoint, personally, like I didn't want to be engaging in discussion with somebody else or in front of a group of people and have people thinking, this is a guy who is professing wisdom. He clearly does not have. And I know because I actually have that wisdom. And so I don't know if it's like a selfish thing or whatever, but I just didn't want to do that anymore. There was a time where I liked to argue just for the sake of it, just to like be a jerk, you know, and like you had an opinion. And so I would just try to argue the opposite side. And it wasn't necessarily about me even having a good argument. It was just about me being probably loud and maybe a little better at using rhetoric, being a sophist, you know, and like making the weaker argument, the stronger, whatever you want to say. Um, and I just, I lost, I've lost interest in that almost completely. I want to base the argument on a decent reason foundation with as much fact as I can, or I almost don't want to engage. I feel like, yeah, my mind hits a fatigue of that, an argument fatigue or a, even a discussion of a certain topic fatigue because we're, we're recording during the pandemic and I've read a bunch and we just recorded an episode about the pandemic. But I've kind of reached this point where I've read a lot. I've looked a lot at different sides of the pandemic and how we're handling this and what science has come to know about it. But I found myself hitting this point where I've been involved in many discussions with you, with other people about what I think we should be doing about the pandemic. And I've hit this point where I'm like, you know what? I, I don't even know anymore. I don't think I could say that much more. Um, we just went back to school. I uh, had half my student body in front of me because we're doing a hybrid model where half the classes are there at one time and half the classes aren't there. Some kids have chosen to go distance learning. And I'm sitting there in front of my kids. We're all wearing masks. I'm playing them a video of me talking. And I just realized I stopped the video after about two minutes. I just wanted to have a sense of what that's like. And I just looked at him and I was like, listen, I don't know where we're going to be next week. And anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen next week, 
just stop listening to them immediately because nobody knows what's going to happen next week. So you can love, you could hate Dr. Fauci, but one of the things I appreciated about how he presented himself, and there's actually a couple of quotations you could find where he says this, is he presented himself as somebody who doesn't necessarily know everything and doesn't necessarily have all the answers. Because Socrates at one point, and this is, this is a very interesting quotation for me, Socrates at one point says, those who had the most reputation seemed to me to be almost the most efficient. Now, to me, that's talking to a person who's become an expert in a certain field to the point where he believes that everything, he or she believes that everything he says has to be, is right, and they don't have to be questioned anymore. Um, I, uh, the book What is Real is a very interesting look at how uh, Niels Bohr became this for uh, quantum mechanics, and people just bowed down to his belief of quantum mechanics and just accepted the Copenhagen interpretation, although all these other really cool things were being out there, and science, scientific thinking kind of got shut down. Like, Dr. Fauci, for me, was the person who had that reputation, and he was before us, and he said, you know what, this is what I think currently right now. Uh, I what he I, I, at certain point he admitted to being wrong in the past, and to me that's what Socrates wants is asking us to do because he finishes that quotation and he says others who were of less repute seem to be superior men in the matter of being sensible, and to me that word sensible the way we're looking at things is because they're willing to look at the situation because you can be blinded by expertise you can say that oh, I know all there is to know at this topic, so this is clearly the right way when you might have a tiny bit of information missing that somebody could step in from the outside and uh, and look and be like, oh, but you need to put this screw right here. Uh, you're missing this little thing. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and I, I think there's a couple of ways you can go with that. Um, I think, for one, I think people who have expertise, particularly in a situation like this, I think the temptation is you know you know a lot and you might know you don't know everything but like it's hard work to make the argument and teach people you know this because you're a teacher right sometimes you just want to say listen just trust me i've put in all the work take my word for it i'm not wrong you know but that's ultimately not convincing to people and it's a dangerous path for you to go down because it leads to that, like, you know, just trust me, I'm right. Where, and this is one of the things I was saying to you in the conversation we were having right before we started today. Um, you know, I'm starting to realize that a lot of the things I believe, if I was forced to lay out a really well-reasoned argument for why I think that or why I believe that, like, I, I honestly can't do it. I don't know why I really think that that way is the right way, you know, or the better thing. Um, and so there's that piece of it. But then I also think that there's the piece of it that recognizing that any, you know, if we're talking specifically about a scientific endeavor, like trying to understand, you know, the virus and the way it spreads and the actual biology of the virus, you know, there's so much uncertainty and we have to deal with that uncertainty. And so what we do is we make a hypothesis and we test it, or in this case, we gather evidence and then we make our um, we make our prediction or we make our theory based on the evidence that we currently have available. And then you have to, you know, as uh, Sean Carroll would say, like a good Bayesian, when you get new information, you know, and Bayes is apparently, you know, credited with the idea of updating, right? You're always updating. You get new information and then you update your priors, right? It's like, I believe this. Here's a new piece of information. I reassess everything I thought I knew and I adjust and I move forward and I adjust my, pri and this goes into probabilistic thinking. And it's like, so, you know, right now I probabilistically believe that with an 80% chance, this is true. And now I gain this new piece of information and I'm going to either knock that down a few percent or raise it up a few percent. And like, this is not a way that people are accustomed to really thinking about things. You have to actually be trained to think this way. Right. And so I think, you know, what happens is if you get really good at a thing, I think there's that logical temptation it's not logical. It's illogical, right? That because I'm good at this thing, it extends to maybe this other thing too, right? So it's one thing to be super confident about the stuff that you actually do know about. But then I think Socrates also warns us about the other piece of that, which is now when I take my 
expertise in one area and assume that that means I have expertise in other areas. So he goes on to say, I went to the hand workers for I was conscious that I knew practically nothing, but I knew I should find that they knew many fine things. And in this, I was not deceived. They did know what I did not. And in this way, they were wiser than I. But men of Athens, the good artisans also seemed to me to have the same failing as the poets. Because of practicing his art well, each one thought he was very wise in the other most important matters. And this folly of theirs obscured that wisdom. So, you know, if you think about something like the modern politician, think about like what are what are they truly what do they truly have expertise in? Like a lot of them are lawyers, so they might, you know, know a lot about the law and they might have some expertise in some areas. Maybe they worked in medicine. Maybe they worked in science. Maybe they, you know, maybe they didn't. But they don't have expertise in everything. And this, and this temptation that like they're everybody's supposed to know, or the the belief that they could know because I'm good at this. I'm also I also know a lot about that. And when you hear, I'm using politics because God, it's just in the news so much now, right? You're always hearing politicians talk, and they're always talking about things that aren't necessarily politics. Like right now, to just use the coronavirus is a great example. I don't really want to hear what a politician has to say about a vaccine. I'd much rather hear a person who does vaccine research or a biologist talking about mRNA. You know, we had a conversation last night uh, with some friends where we were talking about vaccines and nobody really knows. It's like, oh, this is an mRNA vaccine. Do you remember the difference between mRNA and tRNA and rRNA and DNA and transcription and translation that you learned in your high school biology class? Like the bare minimum biology you would need to know in order to even understand what an mRNA vaccine is? No. But do we talk about it like, well, I'm a I'm a pretty intelligent person. I'm I can master accounting. Therefore, I must be able to also offer some relevant knowledge about vaccination. Like to me, you know, th- this temptation that I'm wise in this, so I must also be wise in that too. Um, you really got to be careful about that, you know, personally. Um, but I see it all over the place. I think politics is actually the perfect place to look at it because politics is supposed to help us in so many different areas, like in how areas have grown throughout time to where we are now in the modern world, how these layers of reality have been put on top of things and the expectation of what you need to know to be that high-level politician, uh, which I'm going to come back to. Because I feel like uh, you almost, when you think about this idea of professing wisdom, you almost have to split up and look at it like in different fields. Uh, there's a concrete wisdom that a person can have, uh, uh, using the auto mechanic as my example. There's a concrete wisdom that person has about how a car works and how they do the diagnostics in a car and how they replace this and fix this and then do this. And even they can screw up sometimes. And then if you, as you move away from a more concrete wisdom and you get into these fields that are much more abstract, because politics is uh, so abstract that nobody knows the right answer because all it is is just theories on how we could possibly live it better as a society. And we've never actually followed a theory far enough uh, with adequate data to know whether it's true or false that we're right about that theory. And then the modern politician not only has to have an understanding of these theories, but there's also ex- expectation that they stand in front of us and start professing that they know about viruses, that they know about how to stop poverty, that they know about all these different things. And that's where you start to see like, oh, I need to recognize that maybe my wisdom needs to be buoyed up by this other institution that is learned in this area and they could help me make this decision because I can't do all that. And I need these people over here to help me think about this. When we look at politics, we don't necessarily see that pyramid supporting that person on top. We love to make it just that one individual. Mm-hmm. We, I'm not just, we could talk about this for endlessly and not just in politics, but in history, we love to put it on that one person who maybe put the straw on the camel's back that collapsed everything and made that discovery finally. But sometimes I think that the president, uh, no matter who it is, has way less influence than we want to think they do because there's so much other stuff going on underneath them, so many other people making decisions uh, underneath them. And I mean, obviously, it depends on how the president deals with those institutions, how much power they may have. And because we put so much power on that one person, 
uh, going back to what you said before, we've just put ourselves into this area where we don't want that person to not know. If they say that, I don't actually know. Imagine the president got up in front of the, whoever the president was, got up in front of everybody and just stood at the podium and said, you know what, there's a virus going on and I don't know a thing about it. Mm -hmm. Like everybody would be, there would be a panic would come. I mean, maybe as a society, we, we obviously the president shouldn't say that, but we need to be able to accept that our leaders don't know everything. And we've kind of built our culture around the idea that pretending to know something is a more powerful stance, even if you're wrong. Pretend. Fake it till you make it. Yes. Pretend to be this thing and then you may, you know, and that could be used in a way that the best way to learn how to do a thing is to do the thing. You don't know what you're doing and then you do know what you're doing. But in this context, I think a lot of people take that as, well, you know, if I could just talk about it just well enough to make it seem like I know what I'm talking about, then that's okay. Right? I, I think for me, the expectation would be that politicians are accessing that base of the pyramid that you're talking about, the, the resources that are available to them. And then what they're basically doing is summarizing the wisdom of others when they speak. They're incorporating that into the presentation, right? And ultimately what it comes down to is that if we're really being truthful, none of us can know everything about everything. Every individual is operating with imperfect knowledge. Therefore, we have to we have to defer sometimes. It, it's probably better to have at least some kind of a broad range of knowledge, right? Try to learn at least a little bit about some of the major aspects of life. But you, you might have to study for 30 years to get to the level of expertise where you're at the edge of the knowledge and you can start pushing it out further in certain fields. It takes forever to, to gain expertise just because of the amount that we know. But in that situation, then you have to be ready to defer. You know, I think a lot of times about, you know, I don't go to my uh, orthopedic surgeon when I need to have a tumor removed from my liver, right? I go to an oncologist who is a specialist in, and, and probably even within oncology, there's people who specialize in liver cancer, right? And that's who I'm going to. Like, I don't go to my general practitioner. And so this idea that like, even in these specialized fields, these people aren't going to know enough about these other ones. You know, it's like I'm an expert on whales. I know nothing about tigers. I know some basic biology, but they're both mammals. And But I'm an expert here. And that doesn't mean I transfer the wisdom over here. And so I think we just culturally need to get used to the idea that most people aren't going to know a lot about most things. And that's okay. It's What's more important is... Are you able to access knowledge and learn a thing when you need to know it? And do you have the ability to step back and realize when you don't have the knowledge and then, and then know how to access it, think things through? You know, so it's about more about this process than about ultimately what any one individual knows. I start to wonder because I think that with a situation like coronavirus, you know, a lot of what's going on deals with what I would call more fundamental layers of reality. You're talking about biology, you're talking about chemistry, you're talking about things that underlie the life that we engage in. Like we don't see biology necessarily taking place inside our body. We don't see the chemistry happening, but very much that's what you need to understand in order to, to understand this. So what are we using to get our opinions and beliefs about coronavirus? If we're not all chemists and biologists and we're not epidemiologists, where does it come from? You know, is it coming from the movies that we've seen or what we've seen on TV? What's influencing our beliefs about these things? And, and I think that that is something that we want to explore as we move forward, right? Like, where do we get these beliefs about reality? Where are they coming from? And why do we feel like we have this ability to expound about things that we just really know nothing about? I feel like the modern version of not professing wisdom that you don't have is just you don't need to have an opinion on everything. And your opinion is not always right or even worth expressing sometimes hashtag be humble is yeah. like of course always a good thing to throw in there but it's like a confident humility where you examine life and try to figure out certain things but also recognize that as much as you examine you're not going to know everything in this particular one uh and you are willing to say you know what I don't even have an opinion on this subject. Yeah. I think, I mean, we want to socialize. We want to discuss. Politics is so in front of us because it's on our phones and various things. So that becomes something uh, has become a way more of a modern discussion than when I was a kid. Like my parents didn't sit around talking politics when I was a kid. Yeah. 
And, uh, but I don't mind the idea of stepping back and just being like, all right, I don't know. I've been engaging more and more. I have, I'm liberal leaning, uh, you know, I'll admit it. I have a couple of conservative friends and I've been engaging more and more and just listening to them and not arguing with them because I don't see the point in it, but it just becomes interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. I, uh, I don't even know what even is an opinion. You know, we ask your opinion on something. I, I really like right now what I do for myself because I do like the idea of having opinions, right? So I tend to have my strongest opinions now about things that I believe don't matter. You know, like I'll argue with you for six hours about what the greatest album of all time is because ultimately it is subjective and it doesn't really matter. So I can have a really strong opinion about that because my opinion is based on my preference. Something like how I get infected by coronavirus, that's not like an opinion, right? There's the fact of how the coronavirus actually infects a human being and what it does once it's inside your body. And I am not at liberty to have an opinion about that. I can have an opinion about how we should deal with that fact as a society in order to keep us healthy and well. And even that, I need to know a little bit about the epidemiology of the disease. I need to know a little bit about the biology of the disease. I need to know a little bit about the healthcare system. I need to know a little bit about, you know, how the government system is set up and all, all kinds of things in order to have really an informed opinion. It's not based on really my opinion so much. And so to me, the word opinion, I always feel like an opinion is a subjective thing, whereas I always want to separate facts from opinions and like we can incorporate facts into our opinions and then we get into the idea of like well what is a fact and where does a fact come from and how do we know a fact is a fact and and epistemology you know like how do we even know any of this stuff how do we know what we know um you know to me i think of a the science based worldview where science is uncovering facts about the world and then adjusting them as we move forward based on new available evidence and it's not a perfect system but it's a pretty good system that we've developed for doing that and when we are developing our beliefs and our thoughts and our opinions about things, are we incorporating that science-based worldview? Are we mainly pulling our ideas from the world of art and humanities? And I think that's something we're going to explore as we move forward. Yeah. One of the courses I teach, AP Language and Composition, is about argument. So when I actually talk at the beginning of the year about the difference between opinion and argument, because it's kind of going off of what you were saying, Opinion is just the gut intuitive feeling, the immediate, the system one, uh, where you're like, oh, I'm going to act this way because this is how my tribe acts and this is how I feel and this is uh, what my immediate response is. Whereas argument is understanding that that immediate response is not fully formed. It's an opinion. And you need to dig in and find the facts. And that's what I love about apology, going off of that and into like the whole idea of scientific thinking. What the scientific method is, in a kind of abstract way, is what Socrates talks about in Apology. It's the idea of not professing wisdom you don't have. It's the idea of going around and trying to question and ask and see and uh, step forward and step backward and screw up and know that you're not always right and listen to those around you. From my perspective, from the philosophical humanity side of it, this is how scientific thinking works. Yeah, I, I agree. And so as we kind of move forward, we're going to talk a little bit more, I know, in our next episode about the concept of art and science and the humanities and how they influence the culture. Any closing thoughts about Socrates in, in terms of the larger beautiful illusions concept? How do you see that fitting into what we're doing here? Because I have a thought. If we accept the fact that the beautiful illusion is a perception of the world that's created in our mind, the reflective life, thinking about why we're thinking those things. So this meta kind of world that we can engage in with ourselves, we can think about our own thought. That's the way that we make the illusion more beautiful. I like that because I think my philosophy around uh, beautiful illusions continues to grow. First, I like the idea of recognizing that it's an illusion. To me, that's a big first step. And I think that's part of professing wisdom uh, you don't have. It's like, Everything that I've created in my mind is to some extent an illusion. Even the vision I have right now is to some extent an illusion. So then all the things that I've come to believe and think are also illusory in a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the willingness to change your mind and the willingness to look at that and try and 
the loaded word that we keep talking about, but to try and grow or become better Mm -hmm. starts with being willing to admit that you're wrong, being willing to uh, step back and maybe not say an opinion that you uh, don't have any basis for. So for me, recognizing that it is an illusion is recognizing that you have the ability to possibly revise it. Recognizing that your mind is telling a story, and I don't even love the word story, but recognizing that your mind is creating a narrative is starting to see that maybe I could revise the narrative. And I know there's a lot of debate about whether we can actually do that, but I have to believe that we can revise the narrative. And I have, and I personally believe that seeing it's an illusion is the first step towards that. Yeah, and I would say that if we, either one of us, believe that you can't revise the narrative, then that kind of makes this whole project uh, moot. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that would t- that takes the beautiful out of it, and it just makes it all a goddamn yeah, illusion. I would say that anecdotally, um, we've both, to some extent, been able to revise the narrative over the years. But yeah, I think we're good examples of revising the narrative. So good. Thank you for listening to Beautiful Illusions. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation, and more importantly, that it made you think about something in a new way. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and more importantly, share with your friends. The Beautiful Illusions theme was written, performed, and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. For a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations, as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces, please visit our website, beautifulillusions.org.